Good morning, Sunridge. Hey, if you're new here, my name's Britt. I'm one of the pastors here, and I'm so grateful that you've come to worship with us today. Uh, you know that grace is essential to life, just as water is essential to life. You can live for weeks without food. You can only live days without water. So grace is necessary for survival, just like water. And we're, we're starting a series today we're calling Grace Like Water. And it's a collection of messages that talks about how because of Jesus Christ, we have the pure and amazing grace of God that comes to us. And we have the power to allow that grace to go th through us to others if we allow it. My prayer for this series is for, for all of us, no matter if you're the saltiest Christian, you know, you know it all, or you're the greenest explorer of faith. I pray that all of us would understand God's grace in a way that we never had before. And, and beyond that, I, I pray that we're able to experience it, which is different than understanding it, isn't it? And for those of us that have never accepted the grace of God into our lives, I pray that today or sometime in this series, God breaks through to you in a way that, so that you understand the grace of God and you can be in a place where you can receive it as something that God has for you. I, my prayer is that for all of us here, I, I know that we have people that often listen online and, and I want to address them. It's like they, you might even be too afraid to, to walk into a church. And if you're listening online, I pray that these messages reach you as well. Today, uh, in keeping with a series titled Grace Like Water, my title today is simply Thirst. Because people are thirsty for grace. That's true of religious people. It's also true of unreligious people. In fact, the world craves grace in ways that it cannot even recognize. For instance... The song Amazing Grace was composed by a converted slave trader named John Newton 200 years ago, and it continues to be a favorite of religious and unreligious alike. Statistically, in America, over 90% of the people believe in God. That's what the, our studies tell us. Now, they may not believe as much in the church or Christians, but that, some of that might be on us. I wonder if people experience the grace of God when they encounter Christians in churches. Solomon tells us that we have an inner thirst for the grace of God. He writes in Ecclesiastes that God has placed eternity in the hearts of people. And so there's an innate draw that we have that causes us to thirst for the grace that only God can provide. Philip Yancey has written so eloquently about this in his uh, must-read for every Christian, uh, What's So Amazing About Grace. If you've never read this book, you should get it and read it, because I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read kind of a lengthy excerpt from this. It's, I'm not going to put the words up on the screen. I just want you to listen 
to what Philip Yancey says about grace. He calls it the, the last best word because in every English usage you can find it retains some of the glory of the original. Like a vast aquifer, the word relies, underlies our proud civilization, reminding us that, a, that good things come not from our own efforts, rather by the grace of God. Even now, despite our secular drift, taproots still stretch toward grace. Listen how we use the word. Many people say grace before meals, acknowledging daily, brift, daily bread is a gift from God. We're grateful for someone's kindness, gratified by good news, congratulated when successful, and gracious in hosting friends. When a person's service pleases us, we leave a gratuity. A composer of music may add grace notes to the score, though not essential to the melody, they are gratuitous. These notes add a flourish whose presence would be otherwise missed. Credit cards, rental agencies, and mortgage companies likewise extend to customers an undeserved grace period. We can also learn a lot about the word by how we use the opposite. We use phrases like falling from grace. That phrase was applied to Jimmy Swaggart and to Richard Nixon and O.J. Simpson. And we insult a person by pointing out the dearth of grace. You ingrate, we say, or worse, you're a disgrace. A truly despicable person has no saving grace about him. And a persona non grata is a person who offends the U.S. government by some act of treasury and is officially proclaimed a person without grace. The many uses of the word in English convince me that grace is indeed amazing, truly our last best word. It contains the essence of the gospel as a drop of water can contain the image of the sun. I love that passage in this book. I think that our thirst for grace explains the world's fascination with Jesus because John's gospel tells us that Jesus was the epitome of grace, that he was full of grace and truth. And so from early on in the ministry of Jesus, we see humanity's thirst for grace through the person of Christ. First of all, in Jesus' interaction with a Samaritan woman at the well in John's Gospel, chapter 4, verse 14, whoever drinks the water, Jesus says to her, I, will, I give will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give will become a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And the woman said to him in verse 15, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty. She is thirsty for grace. A week before Jesus' crucifixion, what we have now come to call Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem, and all four Gospels record some portion of this, of what has come to be known in the, in, among the tradition of church as Palm Sunday, as Jesus enters Jerusalem. And in John 12, 12, the next day, a great crowd that had come for the feast heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem, and they took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the King of Israel. 
And what's happening in Jerusalem is a gathering called Passover, one of the three feasts that are the core of the Jewish tradition's faith community experience. And this year is especially joyful, as John records, because this controversial but loved rabbi, Jesus, is going to be attending. Now, there's no uh, information how in, the, in this early world people knew of Jesus coming and his presence being part of this. Maybe they followed your Messiah on his Twitter feed. I'm not sure, but they knew. That just went right over you. Hang with me here, folks. They knew it was coming. And at his arrival, they're, they're, they're shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the King of Israel. Why are they saying these things? Why are they so thrilled that he's there? It's because they'd listened to his teachings. They'd seen his miracles. But beyond that, they felt his compassion. And they witnessed his accessibility. They experienced his acceptance. And they find him to be different than the religious leaders that they know. They find his teachings to be refreshing, not burdensome. And so they are thirsty for grace. Even the unreligious, John records later in this chapter, come to Philip. And these Greek men request to see Jesus. They are thirsty. But in spite of that, you know what happened, right? In spite of the, all the thrill and looking forward to being with the, the epitome of grace, the Son of God who is full of grace and truth, in spite of all that, some reject Him. Many, in fact, and, and some momentarily, but they reject Him. They, they have the opportunity of being in the presence of the water of life. And yet they turn away, even in their thirst. And I think that there's something for us to learn. Those of us who have experienced the grace of God and maybe just gotten a little dry. Or for some of us who are just exploring faith, what, what does all this mean, and how do I obtain the grace of God and quench this thirst in me? So I want to talk about ways that we satisfy our thirst for grace. If we're going to do that, first of all, we have to allow ourselves to be constantly surprised by grace. We have to be constantly surprised I don't know if you've ever been surprised in meeting somebody new. You know, sometimes the surprise is a disappointment, but other times you're just like pleasantly surprised. They, they, they weren't who you thought that they were going to be, and grace can be like that as well. Grace is often not what we expected it to be. In fact, people were set back on their heels almost immediately with Jesus. When he, when he enters Jerusalem in this triumphal entry, they were thinking he was going to be a military or political leader. In John's Gospel 12, 14, Jesus instead finds a young donkey and sits upon it, and as it is written, do not be afraid, O daughter of Zion. See, your king is coming seated on a donkey's colt. So right away, they're, 
They're surprised. What kind of leader rides on a donkey? A, a donkey is an animal of peace. A donkey is a farmer's ride. The powerful, the rich, the military leaders of Rome, they ride on horses. Instead, Jesus arrives on a donkey. A donkey is an animal of a common person. So they're, they're kind of set on their heels right away. And then Jesus enters the city, and almost immediately he goes to the place of worship, and he literally turns the tables on their accepted traditional worship practices. Matthew records that he entered the temple area and drove out all who were buying and selling there, and he overturned the tables of the money changers. Right after this, this magnificent welcome, Jesus creates controversy. And you know, it's because Jesus often defies categorization. You can't, he doesn't always line up in our perfect little theological columns. For instance, as a rabbi, Jesus, a religious leader, seems to avoid the religious leaders of his day, the Pharisees, and seems to prefer the company of the unreligious. In fact, he says, I'd be willing to leave the 99 to go find the one lost sheep. As a rabbi, he should be religiously separated, and instead he demonstrates radical inclusion. He spends his time with prostitutes and women, which were powerless in his day. Sinners, blue-collar fishermen, tax collectors. And he seems unimpressed with his own celebrity, with throngs of followers. He's unimpressed by the successful, the intelligent, those who have status. Instead, he insists that love is the true measure of a person. He seems to embrace people without judgment, yet he is unbending in his principles. A rich young man comes to him and says, how do I inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, sell everything you have, not the four spiritual laws we're accustomed to using. And it's recorded that this rich young ruler, as, as authentic and genuine as he was, he walked away. Very sad. And, and it's recorded that Jesus loved him, but he doesn't chase after him. We all kind of have our perceptions of Jesus. And sometimes those perceptions can cause us to get in a rut. And many times we have misperceptions of Jesus. We all have our ideas, even of how he might have looked, right? So think of what you thought Jesus would look like. Is it this? That's the white Euro Jesus. The only problem was Jesus was not white nor European, right? But many of us have that depiction. Maybe it's this one, another white Euro version, which in the 70s, this was very popular. This is the picture of Jesus where the eyes followed you wherever you were in the room. I had this hanging up in my bedroom before I was a Christian. Thank you, Spencer Gifts. Now, you may not, in your mind, you may not see Jesus as the white European. You might see him this way, 
as a person of color. You might see him as Asian, Asian Jesus. And if you're from a region called hip, then you might think that Jesus looked like this. <laughs> Hipster Jesus. Oh yeah, that's my Jesus. But actually, archaeologists and forensic experts got together and they came up with this depiction of Jesus. And they believe that this is probably the most accurate depiction. Of course, none of us have a photograph, right? But this may be the most accurate image that we have. And I I'll bet you for most, most of you, that was not how you thought Jesus looked. That's, it's just an example of how we, we create Jesus in our own mind. When Jesus encounters this Samaritan woman at the well, she's taken back. The Samaritan woman said to him, you're a Jew and I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? This like puts her back in, in kind of a good way. She's kind of like stunned by this. She is surprised by His grace. And if we're going to allow God's grace to quench our thirst, we have to allow ourselves to be surprised by Jesus. For example, take, take the thing that is like the hottest, most debated, partisan thing that's going on in, in our world today. The thing that if, I'm like creating heartburn for you right now by bringing it up. The thing that it's just you have something to say about this issue in the world. And people are debating it. And you have a position that's, that may well be your, the right position. But try this. That thing that's in your head. Read through the Gospels and ask yourself, what did Jesus explicitly say about that thing? And then after you do that, take it all in and, and just observe what did Jesus do about that? And you know what I think you'll find? I think that you'll find, like me, that you're constantly surprised at what you see. And often, having read what Jesus said, but then watched what he did, you'll often find yourself even in a quandary about what Jesus would do. You know, that might be part of the drill. For the Christian. We can expect to be surprised by the grace of God. You'll be surprised the prayers that you have answered as a Christian, but you will also be surprised by what you can survive when they're not. And you will find, as Paul said, that God's grace can be sufficient. Grace can call you to embrace a person that you never thought that you would be spending time with, and grace could also call you away to retreat from a person or a group of people. With God's grace, you can, you can exist with less than everyone around you, but yet have the, deeping, the deepest longings of your heart fulfilled. And when we're surprised by grace, you'll You'll, you'll feel like you're in a total groove in life. Everything's clicking away, and then Jesus will rock you. You might one day be, uh, you know, in an organization called the fire department. Have I ever mentioned to you guys I used to be a fireman? 
and you're, you're a chief, and then you start thinking you might be a pastor. There's a young couple in our church, they're like, I would describe, describe them as the perfect family. They're, 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 they're beautiful, their kids are awesome, they have great jobs, and they're pretty much dialed in life. And back in November, the grace of God broke through to them and nudged them and said, you know, we need to adopt a child. Not on their radar. And they have continued to move through that process. A, a good friend of mine was like at the top of his career and with a rocket, still heading up. And he recently decided to leave that career and engage in another, kind of doing the same thing in another organization because he wanted to make a kingdom difference. Sometimes you'll be in a groove and Jesus will rock you if you allow yourself to be surprised by grace. If we want grace to be like water, we have to allow God to continually change our landscape. You know, the Mississippi River is, uh, you know, one of the largest rivers in the world, and it's life-giving for century after century. But on occasion, it overflows and overturns everything, and yet even in that, the Mississippi Delta is some of the most fertile ground in this continent. We have to let God constantly overturn us and be surprised. And once we're surprised and we're open to that, we have to allow grace to flow freely without restrictions. We have to allow grace to flow freely without restrictions. You know, I, I love all kinds of theology. I study Reformed theology. I have great roots in that. Um, and I've cut a lot of my eye teeth uh, from the doctrines that come from the Puritans and, and others. Um, but one of the things I cannot agree with Reformed the theology is this, that grace is irresistible. Because I resist it all the time. Because fear, when we get surprised, Fear causes us to restrict, causes us to react. John 12, 19, the Pharisees, they were fearful of Jesus. And so when he arrives with all this fanfare, they say, see, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone after him. They're threatened by him. A little later, they even rebuke his disciples. It's like, you're, you're acting just like your rabbi. Jesus, rebuke those guys. They're out of line. And I'm not down on them. I, I can identify with that because when I'm fearful, I react. It's an instinct that we've been given. When afraid, um, if I'm mountain biking and there's a snake on my trail, I don't act rationally. Like, I panic. If you could just watch a video, you'd see me, like, break unsafely, sometimes head off into the bushes to avoid them. 
which is another level of panic when you're laying in the bushes and thinking, oh, that snake's here to attack me. He's on his way right now. You can't get out of those bushes fast enough. I can be sitting on my surfboard enjoying all the tranquility of in-between waves and letting my legs dangle, but just let a little swirl of water that, that shouldn't be there occur under my feet, and all of a sudden you'll see me like going to like fetus position on top of my board and paddle toward somebody else that raises my chances of survival. <laughs> just might get us confused over there in case he was hunting me. Or if I'm mountain biking, I'm going downhill, I'm, I often ride it early in the morning and there's spider webs and, you know, those are annoying enough, but if I run into one that the last thing I see is a big spider in it, that's a whole other thing. And if, I mean, maybe you've seen somebody like run into a spider web and be surprised, but it's way worse if you think that there's a spider in there. It would look like a crazy person standing out on the trail, falling down on the ground, like trying to rip all my clothes off, you know, trying to make sure that spider wasn't on me. They're threatened by Jesus, and it causes fear. Not, and it wasn't just the, the Pharisees who perceived that there was loss in Jesus coming. You know, Jesus requested, requests a donkey to ride into the city. In, in Mark eleven three. 3, it's recorded, If anyone asks you, why are you doing this? Tell him the Lord needs it, and we'll send it back here shortly. You know, if you were the donkey owner, owner you would learn that sometimes the grace of God will take your donkey. Jesus often threatens our status quo. Status quo wants to stay. And Jesus will threaten that at times. The reason why they, they didn't continue to follow Jesus, why they, some momentarily backed away from the water of life, was he's so controversial He's so threatening after this triumphal entry. First, he, he washes the feet of his disciples, a, a task that is only for the lowest of the low servant, which was like off-putting enough, but then Jesus says, what I've done, you should do for one another. Follow my example. These, these men were accustomed to, in their religion, that it was Father God. Yahweh God. And Jesus says to them, trust me, just like you do the Father. He's putting himself on equal ground with their understanding of who God is. Jesus says, I'm the true vine. I am the explicit Savior. A truth that is still upsetting to our world today, to say that. To people who their religion was measured by the rituals that they did or the traditions that they kept or the feasts that they maintained or circumcision. These were all signs of like, I'm good with God. Jesus says, you know, the, the real measure is your love for one another. And then he says, I'll be executed by the end of this week, but I will rise again. Do you think that that not create, does that not create fear? In his conversation with the Samaritan woman in John 4, 16, he says to her, go call your husband and come back. And she says, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you're right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you've had five husbands. And the man you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. 
Now, scholars debate what's happening here. Is Jesus, um, is he calling her out about her multiple marriages, or is he identifying with her? Is he, is he understanding her? Because remember, like, if, if she had just made promiscuous choices and so was divorced, and, and these divorces were of her own making, um, I don't think she'd be walking around. So, to me, it's much more possible that he's identifying with her because she's powerless. In this day and age, a man could walk outside from his house and declare, I divorce you, I divorce you, I divorce you, and she's out. And this has happened to this woman repeatedly. Either way, she's, she's living with shame. There's either the shame of her choices or there's the shame that her culture's putting on her because she can't get up. These men are just, she's not a person, she's just a thing that can be cast off for burning the toast or not pleasing her husband. And so, what's surprising and and fearful about this is she, whatever it is, she has to rethink the way she lives. She has to dare to live in a way that, like, that I am not what the culture is imposing on me, or I am not my, the poor choices that I've made. Either way, it's a total reformation of her life. And that would create fear in anybody At times, grace will threaten us. It will threaten our lifestyle and our beliefs. It will threaten our theology and our traditions and our power and our security. And when it does, we'll be tempted to restrict it. We'll say in our minds, that, well, if, if I do that, if, if the grace of God is leading me to do that, then what, what if the grace of God is telling me I must take on the heart of a servant in my marriage or with my coworker, or in my church? What if the grace of God is saying to me, change the way you think about your finances. Retool how you think about what God has given you. What if the grace of God comes and, and says, this lifestyle that I'm living is not in keeping with what God has designed for me. The grace of God will, will force us to face our situation. I'm standing here. This is, my, this is my true situation, and I have to realize some things about myself, and I have to rethink even some of the things that I believe about God. It will cause me to do that. And that will be threatening. And sometimes the grace of God will threaten us by just nudging us to offer grace to someone else. Though a person who possesses the grace of God. Why is it so threatening to us to do the same? To provide the same to someone else? We can't allow fear or traditions or our past or our experiences or our religion to restrict the flow of the grace 
of God. You know, it, the Colorado River has multiple dams in it, and uh, for the sake of humanity, those might be good things, right? I mean, I love my electricity, I just have to say. But, you know, the Colorado River flowed for eons, and it, it eroded this thing called the Grand Canyon. It washed away a bunch of stuff that one day wouldn't be there. And literally hundreds of thousands of people go to visit and stand at the edge of this and marvel at the Grand Canyon. The Colorado River did that because it constantly flowed. And I think if we want to satisfy the thirst we have for the grace of God, we have to allow it to surprise us. And when it does, we don't want to dam it up. We want to let it flow through us and take away some of the things that aren't going to be there in a few years. And in doing so, God will make something beautiful that not just you will stand at the edge and look at of your life, but others will as well. So we, we have to allow grace to constantly surprise us. We have to embrace it, not restrict it. And then last, if you want to satisfy your thirst, you must receive God's grace without reservation. You must receive it. The picture for that, to me, is communion. The way, you know, I think communion is a beautiful symbol. And, you know, the bread represents the body of Christ and the juice or wine, the blood of Christ. And, but I'm not talking about those elements so much in the way that we do communion. I love it especially when our elders or others actually give us communion. And you know, when, when you're up there, they say the body of Christ broken for you, the blood of Christ shed for you, or they do it differently. But when we're standing there, what we're doing is receiving the grace of God. That's in symbol. And I think that just as a human being can dispense the grace of God through the symbol of communion. God wants us to receive his grace directly from him. Now, you may not understand everything about it. If you're to drink the water of the grace of God, do you really know why water quenches your thirst? Do you understand it at the cellular level, at the molecular level, at the, all the science words? for the lower levels beyond that. Do, do you understand that? Some of you do. But most of us don't. What we know is we're thirsty. And we drink the water. Grace is like that. But when, when, you, when we receive the grace of God, we have to realize that there's not a catch. We think that there's a catch in receiving the grace of God because our math is wrong, our science is wrong in how we approach it. We think that it all has to add up. It's like the pluses and minuses, but, but the grace of God does not operate in that mathematical system. The grace of God is based entirely on God's love for you, for us. When the woman at the well encountered Jesus, after this dialogue about being thirsty 
and that he could give her the water from which she could drink and never thirst again. She leaves her water jar in John 4, 28. The woman goes back to the town and said to the people, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Christ? You know, for this woman, this is so life-changing. I know we just grow accustomed to it being a story in the Bible, but this is, this is a huge upheaval for her because nothing in her life added up to this thing happening. Not, not, she, Jesus would have never talked to her. She would have never encountered him. She would not have had a dialogue with him. And yet, here she is, encountering the water of life. And for all purposes, it looks as though she received it. If you're thirsty, if you're thirsty because like you're, you're exploring Christian faith right now, and you're like, my life is not adding up. If you're thirsty because you've been a Christian for years, and you're just kind of like dry and desiccated and crabby and, you know, like, you know, you're just following rules in your Christian faith. If that's your faith, you know that you're thirsting for something more. The something more comes. Our thirst is quenched when we continually let God surprise us through the person of Christ. When, when he does so, we embrace it. We don't restrict it. We let it flow freely through us in wherever we're coming from. We receive that grace of God. Drink the water, people. Drink deeply of the grace of God and then leave this place and share it with everybody you can. Because if we don't, the people who have the grace of God, if we don't do it, who will? The world is thirsty for grace, and we have the water of life. Let's pray.